Good morning, everybody. Greetings to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's uh, read some words that Jesus' half-brother wrote. His name is James. And on page 2,398, we find the beginning of the fifth chapter. That's where we're going to pick up. So if you turn there and let's, let's study this important text. As we studied James, we've seen that James' key interest is that people like ourselves, men, understand that if we have genuine faith, that faith is going to issue into a genuinely changed life in every aspect so that we'll be transformed from head to toe. That doesn't mean we'll be made perfect yet, <coughs> but it means we're on our way. They were being changed into the likeness of Christ. And James' main point in chapter 2, you remember, is if this is not happening in your life, you probably haven't received Jesus Christ as Savior. You probably haven't been justified. If there's no demonstration of that justification in your life. So, as Paul says in Romans 3 and Galatians and elsewhere, we're justified not by anything that we've done. So when we're talking about justification, our standing before God, our uh, acceptance to Him, our acceptability to Him, it has nothing to do with our performance. It has to do with our receiving Christ's performance on our behalf. But that faith that is alone is not, or, or rather that justification which is by faith alone, is not by faith that is alone. The faith, genuine faith is always accompanied by changed conduct, a changed heart, a changed affections, a changed will, <coughs> a changed behavior. That's James' main point. So he's not disagreeing with the Apostle Paul. Scripture uh, agrees with Scripture. It's the Word of God. But he's rounding it out in terms of how this faith actually works out in real life. And in order to show us how this works out, James picks several areas of our lives. We've, we've seen, for example, the use of our tongue is very important. So if, we're, if we've really received Jesus Christ as our Savior, that's going to affect the way that we use our tongues. It, it affects the way that we address our sufferings in life, we've seen. We're given a perseverance and a hope and a spiritual power, not only to endure but to abound through spiritual sufferings and physical sufferings. But it also has to do with our money. And we've already run across this in James chapter 2, but now he picks it up in a really direct way. And the reason he does this is in the tradition of his half-brother, the Lord Jesus, uh, this issue of money is extremely important to us. Jesus addresses money more than any other topic, more than he does faith. And you know the statistics, almost half of his parables have to do with the stewardship of money, things. And he teaches us really clearly that you cannot love at the same time, authentically, God and possessions. So Jesus teaches this very clearly, very prophetically throughout his three years of ministry. James obviously picks up on that. And it becomes a major theme in, in James's uh, letter as well. Well, we get it very directly in chapter 5. <coughs> now, you're going to notice that he says, Come now, you rich. Well, who are the rich? Well, people, scholars debate this, but just as we ended chapter 4 by realizing he's talking primarily to businessmen, 
who say they're going to go here and trade and make money here and make trade. He says, just a moment. You don't even know if your body is going to get you out of that chair this morning. You don't know where you're going. You, you don't have control over the future. You must always think, if the Lord wills, I'll do this, that, and the other. So the end of chapter 4 was specifically addressed to, to businessmen. It looks as though James 5 is particularly addressed to the large landowners in James' time who really ran the economy, who had the power. Most people worked for them, and so they had the money and they had the managerial responsibilities for many people in that community. So here we're talking about people who have economic power, not just those who are out in the economy like businessmen, but those who actually have possessions. And we'll talk more about who these rich are in just a moment. Scholars debate whether <coughs> James is talking to people who are believers or whether through the believers he's actually sending a prophetic word to the rich in the unconverted community. And I find scholars on both sides. Uh, let's just do what Wilson normally does and let's just say both. <laughs> Why not? Uh, this applies equally to those who struggle with riches inside the church, who are members of churches, just as it applies to those who have never professed faith in Jesus Christ. But we're going to see that the way that we use wealth is especially reflective of our spiritual condition. That's the point he's making. Let's look at James 5, 1 through 6. <coughs> Please forgive my cough. If it doesn't bother you, it won't bother me. Come now, you rich... Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of harvests, Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Amen. Well, after reading those verses, whoever he's talking about, I don't think I want to be one of them. Uh, so let's find out who these people are. I mean, he's, this is an excoriating, scorching, prophetic word against you rich. Well, uh, we've mentioned that the rich are probably the landowners. They're probably people who identify themselves as rich. We know from what the Scriptures teach us in several areas, including the Proverbs and Jesus' teaching, there's nothing evil about money per se. You know that Paul says it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. So money in and of itself is not evil. Having money is not in itself evil. Clearly what James is talking about here is not the extent of your wealth. It's your intent with your wealth. What are you doing with it? How do you see it? And how do you see yourself in light of the wealth that you have. So when we say you rich, it seems to me that he, the, the rich that he's describing are the people in this text. 
And that's what it means to be rich with mammon from a biblical perspective. Now, we'll talk here this morning about our wealth and how we manage it. But what James is talking about here are those who basically have become their possessions. Their possessions have become what's most important about them, their most important identity, not only in the public, but to themselves, because they have a lot of possessions. A rich person is one who wants to be rich, who's glad he's rich, and tends to stay rich, and to use his wealth in order to promote his own self-interest. There's the rich. As uh, Armin Hammer, the great businessman and industrialist, said one day, money is my first, last, and only love. There you go. Or as Alan Alda, the late great actor, once said, you know, uh, being rich and famous is not necessary for happiness. Only being rich. Uh, <coughs> and a lot of folks think that way about their wealth. It really is what makes them happy. But I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 1, the miseries of the rich are real. Miseries. Miseries. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Uh, you know that Andrew Carnegie was a very wealthy man. And uh, in his early life, he resolved at, at the age of 33, he was only going to work two more years. He was not going to accumulate more wealth. Well, and, and, and he wrote a very rare sort of almost prophetic statement against the accumulation of wealth when he was 33 years of age. Well, you know his history well enough to know he didn't stop at 35. He made tons of money. And later in his life, uh, Carnegie, who eventually, I think, was consumed by his own wealth. Uh, he was a steel man, as you know. But Carnegie said, you know the problem with millionaires? Of course, millionaires then would be, what, 100 millionaires? He said, they rarely smile. Uh, you know, it's just the miseries that come upon wealthy people that they can tell you about. John Jacob Astor, one of the most fabulously wealthy men ever in the history of our country, said he was the most miserable man on the face of the earth. Uh, and there have been, you know, a lot of studies in the past 30 years about the connection between human happiness and wealth. And the studies show over and over again that there are more physical problems, backaches, headaches, heartburn, you know, heart problems, uh, heart attacks, among those who are wealthy than those who are middle-class working people. Uh, there have been lots of studies to show that the measure of happiness by oneself tends to decline with the measure of wealth. <coughs> so we know that the accumulation of wealth does not bring happiness, but it's amazing how people think it will. People who uh, make $30,000 were surveyed and asked, how much money do you think it would take to make you really happy? And, they, and on, on the average, they said $50,000. People who made $100,000 were asked the same question, and on the average, they said probably $250,000. But you can keep this survey going. And um, the, the basic principle behind uh, its, his name is Kasser, who, who wrote a book uh, entitled the, the, High Price, or the Price of Materialism, The High Price of Materialism. And what he shows in the book is that the, the greater accumulation of wealth creates uh, 
a sense of, of need, not just privilege, but when you get it, it's, not just a, it's no longer a privilege, it's a need. It's a basic human need. And you're then, you have an appetite for the next privilege. And when you get that privilege, that becomes a basic human need and you desire the next privilege. And wealth has a way of making you hungrier and hungrier and hungrier and you never get satisfied. I mean, John Rockefeller said it. You know, it's, it's what he wants is whatever the next level of accumulation of wealth is. That's what wealth does to you. You never, if you're a rich man, you never have, have enough. That's, that's what James is saying. And you can see the misery in the ministry of Jesus because you remember Zacchaeus. He was a man who was wealthy, but he was, he was profoundly unhappy inside. So he climbs that sycamore tree, and Jesus invites him to his house. As soon as he comes down that tree and, and to invite Jesus to his house, he gives most of his wealth away to the, to the poor. And he repays. He announces he's going to repay everybody he's ripped off. And, there, and there's joy in his house that day. So the joy has to do with having a satisfying relationship with Jesus Christ, not in the accumulation of your wealth. And we're told over and over again not to be fearful or anxious about things, that God's the one who clothes the grass of the field. He's the one who feeds the ravens. He'll take care of us. We learn to trust Him and not to trust our wealth. Jesus also, had, you remember, had the encounter with a rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was wealthy and getting wealthier every day. He comes to Jesus in all the midst of his self-confidence. And, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There you go. Surely there's some way I can buy this thing or inherit this thing. <coughs> Jesus, knowing his greed, tells him to sell everything he has and give it to the poor and come follow him. And the man walked away sadly. Uh, so he, he, he chose his wealth over Jesus Christ. There's a wealthy man. There's a rich man from the Bible description. Further studies have shown that the accumulation of wealth actually is having a negative influence on the next generation. When studies are done among teenagers to find out who is the most depressed, who is the most anxious, who's on drugs, overwhelmingly today it is the wealthy class who has a much higher percentage of kids who feel isolated from their parents, who feel lonely and therefore feel undervalued and are struggling like crazy. So what wealth does, in once you start accumulating it and then desiring more of it, you keep going after it, here's what you do. You organize your entire life around your financial goals. And when you do that, you undermine the attainment of more important goals in your life, like your relationships. So what wealth does, it tends to erode uh, relationships. It tends to undermine the devel healthy development of relationships. So what we're finding is that our big problem with sexual activity and with drugs is first of all in the severely underclassed, under-resourced, and with the upper uh, resourced people uh, for different reasons. But we're finding in our own culture that wealth is eating our lunch. And the Bible gives us the answer. The Lord Jesus Christ gives us the answer. The man who has resources but who handles them well will find that the resources don't eat him up. And here's how he does it. 
he decides he's going to live a godly life. And he puts a frame of life into his intrapersonal life and into his interpersonal life, into his work life. And he does the best he can with his business and his job and his money making the best he can with the time that he believes he should allot to the attainment of wealth for himself and his family. And then as Wesley says, John Wesley, you Methodists will remember, he says, make as much as you can, save as much as you can, give as much as you can. So saving in a responsible manner, as the Proverbs teach us, is not necessarily hoarding. There's a subtle difference between the two. Maybe it's not so subtle. Hoarding is for the man who takes great pleasure in how much he has. Saving is for the responsible discharge of your duties to those that you love. There's a big difference between those two things. So first of all, I decide how I'm going to live my life, and I may give 60 hours of my time to my work. That's with an understanding that my family will benefit from my living that kind of lifestyle. If I need to come home more and only put 45 hours in my work, fine, that's what I'll do. And I'll find a job where I can do that. If I happen to make a lot of money, fine, then I'll be a steward with it responsibly. But I'm not going to let my life be defined by the accumulation of my wealth. And I'm not going to let the aspiration to accumulate wealth have me short circuit the more important duties that I have in relationship with God and with my neighbor, especially my family. seems to me that that's what we need to learn about the accumulation of wealth. And he's saying here, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So we can see that there are short-term temporal miseries that come with wealth that is not managed by a converted heart. But what James seems to be talking about even more so is the ultimate misery that comes at the judgment of God. So start howling and weeping right now because your wealth is revealing that you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. So howl and weep now because the day of judgment is coming. It seems from the text, as we'll see as we read on, <coughs> that he's talking more about that than he is even the present day miseries. Now, uh, in case you think I'm preaching to, to you, uh, I am, but I'm also... Uh, you, you picked up on that already. Uh, I'm also preaching to me. Uh, you would think that since ministers don't generally make uh, a whole lot of money, uh, I mean, those of us who pastor large churches, you pay us very well. I'm talking about in general. You know what I'm saying? So since pastors don't make a lot of money, you would think, well, good for them. That's not going to be a problem for them. No, it's a huge problem. You don't have to have a lot of money to be a rich man. Uh, and you don't have to have a lot of money to have it control your life. I remember listening to commencement address at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where I went to seminary, by Dr. Billy Graham. And uh, Dr. Graham, I'll never forget the text was First uh, Timothy uh, 1.8, 2 Timothy 1.8. And he said he was preaching on things that trip pastors up in his observation. This would have been 35 years ago things that trip people up in ministry. What keeps them from finishing well in ministry? He said three things. He said pride, greed, and sexual immorality. And isn't it true? You look at these past 35 years, uh, I do anyway, and I see so many people, lay people and clergy, tripped up, 
of pride and greed and sexual immorality. You don't have to have a lot of money to be a greedy man. You can be a poor man and be greedy. You can define your life and how successful your life is by what you own. And you don't have a whole lot to you don't have to have a whole lot to do that. And pastors can do that. They can ruin their whole ministries by being driven by their concern for financial things. Worry, anxiety about physical things is a form of greed. It's, it's the wickedness and idolatry of greed. So we all have to deal with it regardless of the extent of, of our wealth. So he's saying the miseries of the rich are real, both in time and in eternity. Now, secondly, look at verses 2 and 3. He says, the treasures of the rich are perishing. This is the problem. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your whole estate is being eaten while we eat breakfast this morning. It's falling apart. It's perishing. It's passing away even as we talk. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And we eat your flesh like fire. And here's the summarizing statement at the end of verse 3. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You say, well, when are the last days? The last days are right now. The last days began at the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Do you remember how Peter interpreted the events of Pentecost? He said, what's happening? He said, this is a fulfillment of what Joel predicted. When the Spirit will come on all flesh. And when was that going to come? And in the last days. So the Pentecost event was the ushering in of the last season before Jesus Christ returns. There's nothing left to happen in history, biblically, before Jesus comes back. We're right on the edge of history waiting for His return. It's been 2,000 years, but remember, a 1,000 years are but a day to the Lord. So we're right on the edge of history. We're in the last days. And so we're on the edge of history waiting for the return of Jesus Christ to judge all things to take us to be with Him. And what are we doing? Scrounging around trying to gather more coins. You're laying up this treasure in the last days? Are you crazy? You lost your mind? Are you like a child who has no sense of long-term uh, wisdom of doing something in the present that has to do with your long-term happiness? He's saying, even as you play with these things, they're being consumed in your hands. And furthermore, he says, those of you who have accumulated wealth, you've put it in the closet. You've got all of these clothes. And they're in the closet. And you have so many clothes that by the time you come back to that suit, the next time to wear it, the malls have already eaten it and it falls apart. You have way more clothes than you need. And the malls are eating them up. You don't even get to wear them. You've got far more money than you need. And he's saying, we got poor people who don't know where their next meal is coming from, and you have so much money that your silver and gold that are not supposed to corrode, they're corroding for lack of use. Because you've stuck all this thing up into a huge account to build your security while people are starving. You know, if you really want to know who the wealthy are, just in financial terms, what we have to do, of course, is not compare ourselves to our neighbor, which is what everybody does. And that's the reason we always want more wealth. You get a little bit more wealth, you buy a house, you move into this neighborhood, 
and they have all the fancy equipment to take care of their lawn. So, of course, you've got to get all that equipment yourself. It's now a necessity. And you make a little bit more money. You move into the next neighborhood. And, well, of course, they've got this beautiful landscaping and, you know, and, and all this brickwork and beautiful things in their house. Well, you gotta, it's now a necessity. That's what happens to you. You just keep moving along. But what, what happens to us uh, with this wealth is that our appetite just continues to grow and grow. And we just continue to then have to protect it and secure ourselves. And Jesus, you know, taught a parable about this. Man said, I have so much stuff, I don't know where to put it. I have to build more barns. He said, you're an idiot. You're a fool. The floods are coming tonight. The judgment is coming. So how, what are these big barns going to do for you? Nothing. Who are the wealthy? Well, let's compare, rather than compare ourselves to our neighbor, let's compare ourselves to the world. And you know that if you, if you make an income equal to the poverty line in America, which would be $24,000, $25,000 for a family of four, if you make that, that puts you in the top 10% of wage earners in the world. Usually when we think of the really wealthy people, we say, oh, that's the top 1%. You know, I was talking about the top 1%. Let me tell you who the top 1% are. If you make $50,000, you're in the top 1% of the world's wage earners. So from the perspective of the globe, a lot of people in this room are the wealthy people in the world. And what's happened is with our money, our $50,000, or in the case of most of us, a lot more than $50,000. We do not think of ourselves as wealthy. We actually think of other people as being wealthy. That's the way it always works. That's the trick of greed and of money. So let's identify ourselves for who we are. We have tremendous resources. And sometimes we develop our security by the things that we store up instead of developing our security in the Lord Jesus himself. Here he's saying, your wealth is corroding uh, before you, even as we speak. Turning your Bibles back to 1 Timothy 6, Paul has some very important things to say about wealth. This is an example of it. Look at verses 17 through 19. <coughs> Paul says, this is page uh, 2334, 2334. Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You see what he says? By walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, putting your faith in Him, and then living a life that's commensurate with being His disciple, you're storing up treasures. And these are treasures that you can actually keep. The problem with the treasures we're storing here, you're going to lose them all. They're all going to melt in the last big fire. But, you know, Martin Luther said, I've had many things and I've lost many things. But he said, the things I've given away, I've actually kept. Those are the things that we keep. It's the, it's the generosity that stores up treasures because the Lord, we know, not because we deserve it, but He's going to reward us for every good deed, including the deeds we've done with our money. So let's take His word on it. And He'll reward us way beyond anything we deserve. We know that. But the treasures of the rich, the things that they treasure, 
are perishing. You know, we sang just a moment ago, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. So Jesus Christ himself becomes our treasure. You know, I, uh, 25, 30 years ago, I had a wonderful example. Some of you know uh, Hugh McClellan Jr. in Chattanooga. He was an elder at the church I was pastoring. And uh, you know the, uh, some of you know the McClellan Foundation. It's a very large charitable foundation. Hugh uh, basically, uh, when he was a, maybe in his mid-40s, decided to give his whole uh, career time to the uh, leadership of that foundation rather than to the business side. And, uh, but Hugh was a wonderful example of someone who has wealth and who early on just learned how to control the wealth instead of the wealth controlling him. Uh, I, I remember Hugo's uh, uh, car when I was there was a very badly used Honda uh, Accord. And the, I, I can still see the antenna on it. It was bent over like this. And if you got in the car, there was actually a hole on the, on the uh, shotgun side. And you could see the road. You know, it was, you know, it was a crummy, crummy car. And... Uh, where he got it was he, you know, it was time for him to get a, uh, his next car because the other one falling apart. So there was a missionary going to the field and was, you know, just giving his car away because it wasn't worth much. And Hugo took the car and that became his car. Of course, now his wife got a little tired of it sometimes. Uh, you know, he, he, he wouldn't get the new refrigerator and all these kinds of things. And so he was a little Spartan. And in fact, one time she, she played a trick on him. At his 50th birthday, she took his, some of his clothes that had holes shot through it. She gave them out to his friends, and we all wore something of his clothing to come to his birthday party. He was looking at all these clothes, and you know, and he recognized all his tattered clothing that we were wearing at his birthday party. Uh, but here's a man who, who is wealthy uh, in the world's view, and he he gives away seventy percent, that's seven zero, of his income every year, and he he liquidates one percent of his personal assets every year. Uh, and gives them away in mission work. Uh, and the reason is he realizes he has more than he needs, and he just wants to manage it very well, and he wants to show his children how to do the same. So, you know, we all probably have people that we admire who have taught us something about stewardship. And I would just say, be very aggressive about what you give away. Be very aggressive about taking care of the people you're responsible for. Be very aggressive about disciplining yourself. What do you really need? Not to show off others how important you are, but what do you really need? And where is your happiness? And then joyfully live that out. Fearlessly live that out. Whatever accumulation of wealth you have, it's not for yourself. It's to serve other people. So you get, you get Christ-centered and other-oriented in the way that you think about wealth because your wealth is perishing in your hands as we speak. Thirdly, the wealth are known to take advantage of other people. And James wants us all to know that these injustices of the rich are seen. They're observed. It, these injustices cry out and the cry is heard. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you and the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now I mentioned some Old Testament texts here 
Because, for example, in Leviticus 19, uh, we are taught that we're not to reap the entire field. We're to leave the margins of the field unharvested so the poor can come on our property and harvest the field. We're not to take all the grapes off the grapevine. We're to leave some grapes on several vines for the poor in the community to come and take grapes. If you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 15, you will get the lesson about the Sabbath year. Every seventh year the land is to rest, and then the seven times seven, 49, every 50th year is a year of jubilee. And the poor who had to sell their land to survive are now their family is given back that family land so that no families intergenerationally lose access to the fundamental resource, economic resources in the community so that the poor are reinstated in every generation. It's an amazing concept. Now, sadly, when you look in the Old Testament, it's hard to find anywhere that Israel actually consistently carried this out. Why not? Greed, the very problem we're talking about. Once you get that land, you get very happy about owning that land. You become very powerful. You become very prestigious. Everybody looks at you in a different way. Big landowner. That's who James is talking about. Come, you rich. He's talking about the big landowners, those who have economic power. The biblical idea was to have a system whereby the poor at least we could say in Israel, were regularly empowered. You say, well, that's great for Israel. That would be the church, that we should empower each other in the church. And that doesn't apply to civil politics, civics. <coughs> but I think you have to be careful there because if you look in Ezekiel chapter 16, the prophet Ezekiel has a word to say even to Sodom and, about Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's talking to the nations about how they treat their poor. And he says, why was Sodom and Gomorrah judged? You say, oh, sexual immorality. I know the answer to that. It's not what he says. They oppressed their poor. Really? Yes, it wasn't just their sexual immorality. They were socially unjust to the poor. So, for us, first of all, in our own nuclear families, secondly, in the family of the church, thirdly in our community, and fourthly in the world, we take responsibility for seeking to reinstate the poor. Now, what would it mean to reinstate the poor in our economy? Well, in our economy, if you want to reinstate the poor, you've got to find some way to care for the youngest of the children so that they get a decent education, the best education we can give them. And I mean, if you want to impoverish through multiple generations, take education away. If you want to empower in our economy, you give them an education. So it's important for us, if we're reinstating the next generations of poverty-stricken, and you know how that goes, if you're reared in poverty, it's very difficult to get out of it. All the habits and your mentality are shaped by the shortage of possessions, and it's very difficult for you to have confidence to rise up over that. You know, so many people say if these people just pull themselves up by their bootstraps, they don't have any bootstraps, they don't have any boots. And they don't have the mentality to do it. And you've taken for granted the mentality that your mom and daddy gave you, most of you. And my mom and daddy gave me a, a great mentality about how to go into the world and make a difference and grow and develop. 
That doesn't happen in an impoverished neighborhood. So how do you reverse that? You reverse it through caring for that younger generation in particular and empowering them through education. Woe to the rich who ignore that, won't have anything to do with it, and who just say the poor can handle it on their own. That's what Israel often did in ignoring the year of Jubilee and God judged them for it. So the injustice of, uh, of the rich are seen. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson is one of my favorite expositors and he was talking about this text on one occasion and he said you've all heard the the phrase money talks but we know how money talks you know money will often be the deciding factor about a lot of things that we do and who we defer to and who has the power and who doesn't money talks and Sinclair said money is sure talking here that when money is withheld from those the Bible say are supposed to have it and have access to it it's talking not in the way that you wish but it's talking as a testimony, as a witness against us who are the wealthy. So watch out for how money talks in verse 4. Verse 5, Roman numeral 4. The self-indulgences of the rich are self-destructive. He says, you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you were storing up treasures thinking that this would make your life better. But he said, what you're really like are a bunch of cattle out in the field who are just munching it up and having a grand old time. You say, you know, this is a great life. Uh, we cows, we can have sex whenever we want it. Uh, we can just, you know, go in the pond and just hang out. We can eat grass to our heart's delight. This is a great life. Those poor human beings have to work for a living, all this kind of You're out there just getting fatter and fatter as a calf. What you don't realize is the butcher is waiting for you. <laughs> and all this fattening that's going on is so that you're going to be a much better but butchered cow than you would have been. Uh, just silly. You just don't know what's going on. And this is, this is what James is saying. Do you realize with the accumulation of all this wealth, you're just fattening yourselves up for the day of slaughter that's coming? The day of judgment. And who are the ones that are going to be judged more severely? It's these fat people who didn't care for the very skinny people who didn't even have anything to eat. You realize that during this talk that about 200 children have died from preventable diseases like diarrhea, malaria. And we have all the resources we need to get the meds to them. It's just a lack of will. We, we, we could save 200 lives during this hour if we could just mobilize the West to take the resources we have and get it to them. You realize we've got plenty of food for the world. There's no reason for anybody to starve. They're starving right and left. There's no reason for people to starve. But 80% of the food is consumed by 20% of the population of the globe. It's just sort of thoughtless, systemic wealth that folks who are just rolling down the river and kind of enjoying life and just not thinking about other people who can't roll down the river. And it's just sort of thoughtless, systemic, economic oppression. You know, when I look at the anger, political anger, you know, that we're facing now in our country, and something I haven't heard said very much on CNN, but it seems to me to be a huge factor behind all of this, is the uh, almost exponential rate 
at which the rich are separating themselves from the poor. I mean, we've talked about that before here, how CEO salaries now have just ballooned to multiple hundreds of times over the incoming salary of, of their laborers. And since the 1960s has just exponentially shot up so that the gap is greater than it's ever been. And it's true globally. <coughs> and I think that gap actually explains a lot of the anger. I think our neighbors who are frustrated may not be aware of exactly the economic theories behind that gap. They just know that something ain't working for them. But I think that gap is producing all kinds of frustration. And once again, wealthy, life is going to get more miserable. If we don't take care of everybody in a responsible way, if we don't take, have a heart for our community and lifting everybody up and realizing that's our communal responsibility, especially in the church, well, you can expect misery and frustration. I think that Brexit can probably be explained in large part by that same gap in UK and Europe. So uh, it's, it's going to get worse uh, unless the wealthy of the world understand that self-indulgence is self-destructive. Look back at 1 Timothy with me, if you will, chapter 6. Look at some earlier verses for just a moment. This is on page 2334. <coughs> 1 Timothy 6, look at verse 6. He says, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. That's an important word when it comes to wealth, contentment. How many of us think, you know, if the boss would just recognize me, all I really need is about a 7 or 8% increase, and things are going to be fine. Really? <laughs> really, will that do it for you? <laughs> I don't think so. Godliness with contentment is a wonderful thing. There are other ways to get content. I'm telling you, a little bit of smaller house, a little bit older car, one less vacation to Europe, whatever it is. There are ways to get content. I appreciated so much when Governor Phil Bredesen came to town. Uh, this, of course, was years ago. And we were in a financial crisis. Do you remember that when he first took office in his first year? We were in a financial crisis. And I'll never forget watching the state of the state address he gave to Congress, Tennessee legislature. And in one hour address, he solved our problems. He basically said, we're going to get this budget in order and here's how we're going to do it. We're going to cut everything except education by this percentage. Boom, that's it. We're going to be solid. Huh? Did, they, did it really happen that fast? I mean, it was unbelievable. Had this guy with a business background who was no nonsense, came in and called it what it was. Well, he came to Memphis, and because we were all upset, because obviously, I mean, for good reason, because there are a lot of people whose medical care was being endangered. So there was a big problem. So we all gathered downtown. We have a panel discussion, and Governor Bradison is challenged on it by us Memphians. And he just looks at us. Uh, you know how he does. He doesn't smile much. But he just looks at us and said, there's no way that any revenue increases are getting through the legislature. Everything has to be done on the cost side, okay? Solve the problem. That's it. You know what? When you know how much money you make, when you know how much money you responsibly spend, it's amazing how contentment and peace can just sort of settle in. Just change your expectations. Come on now. Stuff you think is absolutely necessary is not. Uh, so much of what you think is necessary is not. 
Godliness with contentment is a good thing. Keep reading. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. No U-Hauls at your funerals. I'm telling you what, never saw one. But if we have food and clothing, would you look at this? Food and clothing. We don't want anybody naked. We don't want anybody hungry. If you're not naked and you're not hungry, godliness with contentment is a wonderful thing. Keep reading. With these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see the dangers of being a malcontent with your finances? It's very dangerous. You can fall prey to all kinds of temptations, including the temptation for self-indulgence. Just be very careful with a malcontented heart. It's a dangerous heart. You must cultivate that heart in contentment, and then you'll find that you make wise decisions about everything in your life. Lastly, verse 6, the abuses of the rich are outrageous. And, you know, James mentions this in James chapter 2. Why don't you turn back and look with me at verse 5. <coughs> you remember that we studied this where James says, um, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Now look at this. Are not the rich ones uh, rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Is it not the rich who have sloppy language and who take the Lord's name in vain, who litigate against you, who are pains in the neck to deal with? Is it not the rich who are cornering you, making, you know, trying to make you small so they can be great? Are not the rich doing this to you? And is it not the rich part of your own heart that does this to other people? So he's saying the abuses of the rich are outrageous. So when you allow your heart to aspire to things, when your possessions begin to define you, when you begin to think of yourself by how much money you have, when you find yourself at night just dreaming about what your bank account is and what it could be if the stock market went up 10%, when that's the, the last thought you have in the night and the first thought you have when you wake up in the morning, there, there's a godling trying to take over your life. Instead of thinking about the Lord and His kingdom and how you can serve Him and what can be done for Him. And it involves your business, it involves your finances, but you're thinking from His perspective because otherwise the abuses that we have toward other people are outrageous. I told you about Andrew Carnegie. If you read Tim Keller's book on idolatry and you read the chapter on greed, you'll see he tells a story about, about Andrew Carnegie. By the time he died... The people who were working in the steel mills were working in such miserable conditions. They were living in little hovels. And I've seen some of those old hovels, at least 40 years ago I saw them, where these folks used to live. And it was almost like slavery. And just these little villages, hovels, where the steel workers would live. The conditions were so hot that they had to make little pieces of board for themselves to put under their shoes so their feet wouldn't burn up. 
and most of them didn't live past the age of 40. Those were the men that Andrew Carnegie was hiring, and that, that was the way he treated them. When he had said at 33, he was going to work only two more years and then live a life of generosity toward others. That's the last thing he ended up doing was that. What happened? He did not watch out for, for self-indulgence, and he allowed himself to become abusive. You know, there's a lot of talk, has been a lot of talk about minimum wage. Let me just ask you, could you live on minimum wage? What would you have to do if you, you actually ordered your life on minimum wage? And I realize, you know, we got college workers working the summer and other people who are working part-time. Maybe they do fine, you know, as a second income earner in their family with minimum wage. But wouldn't it be better if in the people you manage that you got them up to a living wage? You know, instead of $9 or whatever it is, you move it on up to $12 just for a starting point, you know, at the least. Wouldn't it be great if, if when someone works in your yard part-time that you talk with the church health center and see if you can help them get one of those medical policies where doctors, physicians in our own community are willing to help working people who can't afford medical insurance? Wouldn't it be great to, to just think of that? Wouldn't it be great that if your company is very successful in a given year, that you're looking for bonuses for everybody, not just your executive team, but you're thinking about all these people who served you during the year, and you're looking to be very aggressive with the kind of rewards you give them? Wouldn't it be wonderful if people who have resources and who are managing people would just convert their thinking so that they become other-oriented, and they only keep for, them, for themselves what is, first of all, appropriate, and secondly, what's needed. And otherwise, they're not only serving their stockholders, and oftentimes they're a primary stockholder, they're not only serving their stockholders, they're serving those that are in their employ. Well, this is basically what James is saying. He's saying what happens to wealthy people is that they stop thinking about their neighbor. They stop thinking about their lifestyle. I remember when I was a college student working in the summer, working with folks who were working in, the, uh, in an iron uh, 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 factory, or, or what am I trying to say, um, the foundry, working in a foundry where I was working. And I think, you know, living on this day after day, week after week, and supporting their families. And even as a 19-year-old, I was thinking, how do these people do this? And, you know, the more I thought about it, I wish some other people had wondered how they do this. I wish some people who run the company had thought about how they're doing this. Do you think, you know, if you make $80,000, do you think about how a young man with a family can run his family on thirty-five dollars or $40,000? Has that crossed your mind? Have you ever just tried to run the numbers and see how someone does that if they're living in a, one of our middle-class communities? Uh, it's our job to be thinking those kind of thoughts because every one of you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you care for people, you're a pastor. You realize this? You're pastoring those people. And you have a way of pastoring them that I'll never have. You have influence in their lives I'll never have. You're the only pastor they know outside their own family. So when you have human responsibilities, you care for those people to the best of your ability. I'm not talking about indulging them in ways that ruin their work habits and so on. You know what I'm saying. I'm talking about genuine care for their development, and for their welfare. Uh, it was interesting, once again, in listening to Sinclair Ferguson, he said, you know, he said, I think the abortion problem in our country 
has not just ironically appeared at the same time that the explosion of wealth has happened in our country. He said, I think the two things go together. That with this massive accumulation of wealth that we've experienced over the past 50 years, we've actually become less concerned with our neighbor. And he, he <laughs> said this, I just never had thought about it this way, but he said, do you realize, he's, he's a Scotsman, okay, citizen of Scotland. He said, do you realize that the abortions that we had in this country in the past five years were enough to wipe out the population of old Scotland? So the past five years, we've just wiped out a country, just thoughtlessly, because our life is going fine. And wealth has actually paralyzed us in some ways from thinking about the most basic need of a neighbor, which is to survive physically. And we can see it in the way that we often hold the poor in contempt. And we just want to run away from urban and civic and material problems that are in our community. When you follow Christ, you can see from what James is saying. When you follow my half-brother, who's now my Lord, <laughs> your life changes. He says, come now, you rich. And let's reason together. Thank God for His Word and for the joy that people who are following Christ have, whether you have a little or a lot. We all have the same joy because He's our treasure. And He, he is an inexhaustible riches that will never pass away. Glory be to His name. Let's pray. Father, thank You for making us all wealthy in Jesus Christ who for our sakes, though rich, became poor, that we, by His poverty, might become rich. Lord, help us to manage the considerable financial resources that You've given so many of us in this room. And I number myself among them. Grant us great wisdom. Help us to enjoy life because we enjoy You. Help us not to be afraid of money but help us not to serve money. But we pray that you'll enable us to gain control over our possessions so that they serve us and ultimately serve you and your interests. So we pray, Lord, that regardless of the extent of our wealth, we will all be your poor and happy servants. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.